Well, good morning, Mosaic. Welcome, welcome back to the book of Isaiah. You had a little bit of a break from the prophet with Palm Sunday and Easter. Now it's time to get back to getting rocked. Are your loins girded? Are they? Yes. All right. Then let's do it. Okay. So this is this this it, the for the first half might might be a little dark, but it'll get it'll get happier at the end, maybe. All right. So you just heard Isaiah 30 verses 1 to 18. But I want to explain the context, the context of it. If you've been if you've been with us through the book of Isaiah, then you know that a lot of this book is about foreign policy. In this case, the southern nation of Judah is under threat from an encroaching empire, Assyria. And so this situation threatens Judah in a way that actually we often feel threatened. When I counsel couples in premarital counseling, which is a requirement for me to be able to do your, to do your wedding, one of, the, one of the questions that I ask, which is kind of a, a trick question, is do you expect your spouse to meet all of your emotional needs? I mean, obviously they can't, but some of us still think that they should. But it's because one of our most basic emotional, emotional needs is safety and, and security. We need to know that we're safe. We need to know that we're loved. We need to know that we're not in danger. Because when that's taken away, then we go into trauma response mode. Fight, flight, freeze, fawn. We either fight danger, we run from it, we're paralyzed by it, or we seek to appease whoever it is that's harming us. And when faced with an, with an overwhelming military threat like like Assyria, Israel went straight into trauma response mode, as many of us do. And they didn't just do one of those trauma responses, they did three of them. In order to fight, they fled to fawn over an enemy. Specifically, in order to militarily defend themselves, they planned to run into the arms of Egypt, the nation that enslaved and oppressed them. For this, God, through Isaiah, utters judgment upon them in verses 1 and 2. He says, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me. Now, now I want us to keep in mind two things about this dynamic. First, it's a very normal thing to do. But second, it's a completely ridiculous thing to do. It's very normal in the sense that it's common. Think about the phrase, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. Oppression that you've experienced before often feels safer than the possibility of oppression that you don't know. We tell ourselves it could, it could always be worse in order to remain in bad situations. For example, when folks are in abusive relationships, sometimes outsiders get really confused when people return to their abusers. Why would you do that? Don't you remember how he treated you? Don't, you? don't you remember the pain that she caused? Well, yeah, most often they do, but there's still this, this, this feeling of safety and security that people tell themselves that they had even when they may have been fighting for their lives. It's true of us, but it's also true of Israel. This refrain is constant in the life of the people of God. After they left Egypt, after God freed them miraculously. They kept complaining in the wilderness, talking about how good they had it in backbreaking slavery. Numbers 11, 4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. So, so context, they, they've been given manna from heaven to, 
free, free food from heaven. Okay, so the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. And now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this miraculous manna. Or Numbers 14, 2 to 4. After they scouted out the promised land and they saw some giants, all the, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and, and actually go back to Egypt. This is a common refrain. Lord, your miraculous provision isn't enough. We want more. We want more. The ever-present refrain of greed. Fast forward to the threat of Assyria. They've got what they need, and in the presence of threat, they respond not by going to the Lord, but by looking to their own resources and the desire to fight fire with fire. Military might. And if they don't have it, then they're going to go to whoever does have it. And in this case, it's Egypt, their oppressor. But there's a constant lesson that God seeks to teach his people when they're ungrateful, when we are ungrateful. And it's that seeking safety and security in other means always leads to disaster and embarrassment. Verse 5 tells us that the people of God will be put to shame because of a people useless to them, who bring neither help nor advantage, but only shame and disgrace. What's the point? Egypt can't help them against Assyria. The simple fact is that they're not strong enough. And so to drive this point home, Isaiah adds a mini prophecy in verses 6 and 7. You could read this portion as saying, look, the people are hopeless, and I feel sorry for the animals. Verses 6 and 7, through a land of hardship and distress, of lions and lionesses, of adders and darting snakes, the envoys carry their riches on donkeys' backs, their treasures on the humps of camels to that unprofitable nation to Egypt, whose help is utterly useless. Therefore, I call her Rahab the do-nothing. I need you to see this. Rahab is, is a mythical monster like Leviathan. Some people think it could be a reference to a hippopotamus or some lazy giant animal. Judah is loading up their donkeys and their camels with tribute money, they're emptying their savings accounts, liquidating all of their investments, loading up for a journey across the wilderness, across a desert, a long, arduous journey. For what? To spend all of that money on nothing, for no protection. Egypt's help is useless. And so God calls Egypt Rahab the do-nothing. He's trying to tell the people, stop looking for safety and security in things that aren't the Lord. Those things can't help you. I don't care how much you spend on them. But the people have other plans. Isaiah is to write on a scroll what the words of the people are. I want you to listen to verses 9 to 11. For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way, get off this path, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. That's deep, y'all. Because none of us wants to be called to repentance. I know I don't. 
I, I would much rather not be told that I'm greedy, lustful, and prideful. But you guys don't let me do that. In, when, 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 when we preach the gospel, I have, to, I have to preach these messages to myself as much as I preach them here. For example, a few years ago, uh, when, 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 I, when I would often kind of talk about race, and, and sometimes folks would get upset, my response in those situations was, hey, like, I'm going to talk about race as often as the Bible does. Well, the thing is, the Bible never talks about race because it's a 15th and 16th century construct. But over the course of time, one of the things that I learned is that the, is that the history of race and racism is a, is a history of greed and economic exploitation. And if there's one thing that the Bible talks a lot about, it's greed. If there's one thing the Bible talks a lot about, it's money. And so, and, so, and so you may have noticed that as we go through the book of Isaiah, I'm talking a lot about money. Money, our economy, capitalism, all these things. And sometimes that's going to make us uncomfortable. Sometimes because we haven't heard this kind of thing in church before. But I'm going to say this here. Now, as often as the Bible talks about it, I'm going to talk about it. Because I need that. For, I need that. I need to be reminded of the, of, the, of the actual priorities of the Scripture. But even I want to say, I want to say these things that the, that the people of God tell the Lord. That I want to say, look, can't you just lie to me and tell me everything's all right? Can't you just lie to me and tell me that the status quo is fine? Can't you just lie to me and tell me that my continued complicity in systems of injustice is just unavoidable and there's nothing I can do about it? No. I can't do that. And the Lord doesn't want our ears to be tickled by pleasant things or illusions. And so, in verses 12 to 14, the Lord tells the people what the consequences of their rebellion are going to be. The consequence of them trying to hedge their bets and go to Egypt instead of the Lord. So the image that he gives them is that of a wall. A wall that they build by depending on their own resources. And he says this about them in verse 14. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. Basically, I'm going to take everything from you when you depend on other things. I'm going to shatter your defenses so totally that, that, that they won't be good for anything. You won't even have the smallest shard to grab a piece of coal or a handful of water. Why? Because you rely on oppression and depend on deceit. i got an example. So Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann said in one of his books, the Bible is relentlessly material in its focus and concern. It refuses to let its passion be siphoned off into things spiritual, a matter of intense concern given the, given the current rage about spiritual and spiritual but not religious. Everywhere the Bible is preoccupied with bodily existence. He's right. And this passage is a relentlessly material one. For this nation, I'm talking about the nation of the text, military investment is real. It's also real for our nation, which outspends every other nation when you think about the military. But you and I aren't really directly involved in, in most of that, and we likely won't change it. Also, I'm pretty sure very little of, your, of our own perception of our safety and security on a daily basis is based on the strength of the American military. I mean, there might be elements of it. But there are some other things that we 
like for our safety. Some of y'all, some of us, might love our guns. I could talk about us finding our security in our arsenals, even though we're much more likely to kill ourselves or a child with a firearm than to actually effectively defend yourself against some intruder who likely won't come into your house. I could talk about the power of an industry that greedily feeds on that idolatry in order to block legislation that could save children. Now, before you start thinking, oh, there Malcolm goes, being all political again. If you've been here long enough, you also know I'm entirely unfazed by that critique. But also, but also, we all need to understand that everything is political insofar as it affects our life together. There is nothing outside of the purview of the good news of Jesus Christ. But I would be entirely within my rights to make this a sermon about guns because of the military focus of this passage, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to focus on something less controversial. Our two idols are our wealth and our work. Our wealth and our work. I just finished an excellent book by sociologist Matthew Desmond. It's called Poverty by America. It's brand new. just came out a few weeks ago. And the argument of the book is, is simple. He's asking, why are we, the richest country in the world, also a place of devastating poverty? Well, because poverty is actually advantageous to those of us who are middle and upper class. For example, think broadly about the stock market. More than half of us are in some way invested in it, even though the richest 10% of us own about 80% of the total. So think about your retirement, 529 plans for college, all these things. If you're invested in a company, you make money when their profits increase. Well, how do their profits increase? More often by their, by the, by their reduction of cost than by innovation. There is innovation, but often it's by reduction of cost. And what's the biggest cost for most companies? Labor, otherwise known as people. So back in 2015, Walmart said that it would increase its starting wage to $9 an hour. Still not a living wage, but better than it was. And the response was that their shares fell by 10%, erasing $20 billion of their market value. The biggest single-day loss for Walmart on record. In 2021, they said they would raise their wages to $15 an hour to compete with Amazon, and their stock fell 6%. What does that tell us? It tells us that the market, that is us, we don't really want people to be paid fairly if we make less money. It's one of the little but numerous ways that we rely on oppression in our enslavement to consumer capitalism. But here's another, here's another example. James Baldwin said in 1961, that anyone who's ever struggled with poverty knows that it's extremely expensive to be poor. It's even more expensive now. Every year, banks collect over $11 billion in overdraft fees. These things we don't think about. Predominantly from low-income folks. In 2019, 9% of all of these account holders paid 84% of those fees. And that 9%? folks with account balances of less than $350. It's a steady stream of income for these big banks, a steady form of exploitation that then enables other exploiters to come in, payday lenders and others, who say, oh, I'll help you, desperate person out of your jam, when you've been made desperate by unforeseen medical bills or landlords hiking up your rent. And when those lenders get a hold of you, folks are then trapped in loans with, 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 with rates of interest that can, that, can, that can amount to 400 and 
And then people are trapped in these endless cycles of debt, of slavery, and of poverty. I was just talking to Slim when he was, he was working in a godless sales job. And, and, and no, I'm just kidding. Uh, it was sales, uh, but 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 he was but he would, but he would, but he was talking about how he would how he would be encouraged. I said to get folks to to, uh, to 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 get folks to buy to buy items on kind of Dell's uh, payment plan where you get where you get a year of of interest free financing. And somebody asked him at one point, "Yeah, well, like what happens after that year?" Well, then it's like thirty percent, thirty percent, huh? Now, I don't want to just rattle off these things just to depress you. I, I, I want us to see that oppression, exploitation, and death are all around us. But also that subtly, in ways that we often don't want to admit or ask about, we actually depend on it. The book is great. I suggest you read it. But I want to add on to that. We're tempted to not only find safety and security in wealth, but also in how hard we work. Flip side of the coin, how much we make, how, much, how hard we work. When we fail, our first answer is often that we didn't work hard enough. And so we break our backs even more. Now, some of us are lazy and do actually need to work harder. But, but I, think it's more often, I think it's more often the case in this culture and this economy that when we find ourselves struggling, our first tendency is to blame ourselves, even when it's the environment that we're in that's actually killing us. And so to this people, to us, God has a very, very powerful word. And he says it in Isaiah 30, verse 15. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. The people of Judah thought that they could depend on military might and material possessions for their salvation. So God said, okay, see where that leads. In this case, it led to their exile and losing everything and losing everything. And there's a, and there's a, fear, there's a fear in me that, that when we place our faith in our material possessions, in our career drive, the Lord might say, okay, see where that leads. There's a trend in the scriptures that, 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 that when the people start, start, start complaining, uh, he lets them have what they want in a way that like, they don't like. So for example, uh, him giving them a king in judgment, something I've talked about before, but the funniest one to me, I think it's really important that we understand how, how, how hilarious the scriptures are. The funniest one is actually that text from Numbers that I quoted earlier about, about, about meat. Uh, so the people who've been, they've been miraculously given manna from the sky, which is white, white as milk and sweet as honey. It's just glorious, glorious stuff. But they want meat, which I probably would too, because I need my beef, preferably prime, because I'm bougie and Texan. But God says, oh, oh, you want, you want meat. Okay, I got you. Numbers eleven eighteen. God tells Moses, tell, tell the people. Consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you're going to eat it. You, you, you're not just going to eat it for just one day or two days or, or five or ten or twenty, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils, and you loathe it because you've rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? 
Oh, you go, oh, you gonna have me. Oh, you gonna have you, you oh, you gonna have so much of it, you're gonna get sick of it. It's gonna come out of your nose. The Lord is hilarious. I mean, I'm sure the, I mean, the people didn't like it because they had you know, quail coming out of their nose. But see, brothers and sisters, this, this, is, this is the root of our and Israel's sin. Because in looking to Egypt, what's going on is they're rejecting the Lord's salvation. In looking for a king, they rejected the Lord's salvation. In asking for meat, in, instead, of, instead of being thankful to the Lord for his miraculous provision of their needs in the, midst of a, in the midst of the wilderness, instead they reject the Lord's salvation. We're the same. When we, when we rely on our own efforts, when we rely on our own hard work, when we, when we rely first and, first and foremost on, on our own material possessions for security, we're rejecting the Lord's salvation. That's what idolatry is. And this is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, which we confessed earlier. And I want you to ask this question about, of, of yourselves. What are the things that you worry most about? And why do you think that you worry about them more than the Lord does? I was talking to a dear brother who, like most of us, uh, is thrown off guard every time there's a school shooting when children die. Because many of us immediately go in our minds to, what if this happened to my kids? And for a lot of us, that puts us in a frenzy of worry. But the, ref- but the response of the scriptures is not, in the face of threat, stockpile those weapons. The Lord offers another answer. I want us to really think about what he's saying in chapter 30, verse 15. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Repentance and rest are two things that we hate to do. And yet there are two things that specifically call on our resources. You know what the Lord encourages us to do when we're stressed out and tempted to just work harder to silence the stressed out voices in our heads? He says, repent and rest and be quiet and trust. Why? Because of verse 18, because the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Do you understand what the two most important events in the scriptures are? It's the exodus and the resurrection. Because those are the Lord's primary liberative acts in the scriptures. In the Exodus, he sets his people free, and the entirety of the Old Testament is him trying to tell his people, this is who you are. You're the people that I set free. Live like that. Set each other free. Be witnesses of freedom to the world. And that is the same message that he gives us in the resurrection. When Jesus Christ got up from the dead, what he's telling you is you're free. He's telling you that when I died, your sin died with me. This is a message of freedom. Which means set other people free. And that's who our God is. But what that means for us is that our lives are to be lives of rest and repentance. 
What does that look like? What are these? What? 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 What might a life look like if it? What? What, what might a life look like if it, if it? If it? If it was shaped by these rhythms of rest, repentance, quietness, and trust? Well, that's what the whole second half of this chapter is about. Verse twenty and twenty-one say, "Your teachers will be hidden no more." With your own eyes, you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, away with you. You see, brothers and sisters, the way of rest and repentance is the only way to resist those constant voices that tell you, well, if you just make more money, you'll actually be secure. If you just work a little harder, you'll actually be secure. No, of course, be faithful with your gifts and your time and your work, but none of you has to work yourself into the ground, and we ought to be all invested in none of us having to work ourselves into the ground. Like, that's not just something I want to say of you individually. I, we as a community need to be actually committed to our brothers and sisters not living that kind of life. Because the Lord does not promise that you're just going to work yourself into the ground and die. Verses 23 and 24 suggest that a life lived in this way, a life of rest, repentance, trust, all these things, is a life where you have been provided for. And sometimes that's through miraculous means, but sometimes it has a more mundane reality. Sometimes it means that, hey, the Lord has actually called and created a community to meet your material needs. I think it's, it's, it's so easy for us to think about our needs as just my individual needs. And so the only way that I can think of provision is if I'm the one providing for my needs. And one of the constant refrains throughout Scripture is like, no, you're not alone. You have people who, the, who God has called to care for you, to understand that your needs are not just your needs. If you're hungry, that affects me. And these verses are very material. When you look at, when you look at that, sec, that second half of that chapter, there's, there are all these images of rain and, a, and of seed and of food because these are things that we need and God knows that you need them. This text ends with the wrath of God upon the rebellious nations, but with the people of God singing at their redemption. And these two things go, go back and forth in the book of Isaiah constantly. And we, and we, and we cannot, we can't be tempted to over-spiritualize them because the Lord's salvation is a spiritual salvation, yes, but it's also a bodily one. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a metaphor. The Son of God really took on flesh. He really lived, he really touched and healed people, and as Ignatius of Antioch said in the early second century, he was crucified in reality and not in appearance, not in imagination, not in deceit. He really died and was buried, and he really rose from the dead. Those are bodily realities, and these bodily realities that we believe to be true ought to actually affect us bodily in concrete ways. So here's one of those ways. You want to know how, to, how we can avoid the idolization of our wealth and our toil? Two idols that we often seek comfort in? One application today. Easy to remember. And it's because it's the, because it's the commandment that we ignore the most. It's the keeping of the Sabbath. Or for many of us, the Lord's Day. I want you to pick a day a week. And I want you to designate it as a day that you will neither work nor consume that you will neither buy 
nor toil. That you not only won't toil, but that you won't directly contribute to anybody else needing to toil. Take a day, just a day out of the week, and intentionally experience rest and repentance. Quietness and trust. We ought to be doing it every day. But, as in doing those things, not like not working every day. Work, obviously we need work. But, that, but that day, it's, the, it's like the Sabbath is probably, it's, it, it's, it's, it's like the most anti-consumer element of God's law. Because it reminds you that profit maximization is not the way to live. Wringing every bit of productivity out of your life is not a way to live. Because productivity is not a measure of your worth. You don't run the world. God does. And the thing about it is that when you, when you do this, and this is something that I've found to be true because this is something that, that, I, that I, 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 I fiercely guard my Sundays. I don't think about, I'm, I'm, your, I'm your bivocational pastor. I have another job. I don't think about that job on Sundays. I don't answer my emails. And just people, know, people just need to know, if you're reaching out to me on Sunday about something, you're, I'm not going to respond. That Sunday is my day for the Lord, for my family, for you. And when, and when that becomes a habit, you realize how freeing and how rejuvenating it is to not endlessly work and consume. You realize the joy of trusting the Lord, of even spending just a day enjoying the people whom, he, who, whom he's placed in your midst, enjoying the good gift that worship is. Brothers and sisters, the world is not going to fall apart if you don't work one day out of the seven. But here's the thing. Some of you are going to react to that, and your first thought is going to be, that's impossible. And if that's our reaction, there's something wrong, and I'm going to blame two things. One of two things. So either our society and, or your industry has forced you into a soul-sucking position, or you're a workaholic and you just don't want to do it. The first one isn't your fault, but I encourage you with the help of your brothers and sisters to find a way to make rest happen because if you don't have it, you will die. You will burn out and there will be nothing left for you to love your neighbor. But if the second one is true, then my call to you is to repent. Repent of your idolatry, repent of your workaholism, and remember that what you have effectively done is you have commodified yourself. You're treating your body like captains of industry treat their machines, as a resource to suck every last bit out of them. That is not what you are. You're a human being created in the image of God. And if you're in Christ, you're a person meant to live a life of joy that after your death will transform into a life of just ruling alongside the Savior who bought you. The answer that Isaiah and the Lord give to battling idolatry is fourfold. Rest, repent, be quiet, and trust. These are the steps for us to even begin to live justly in this world and in union with Christ. 
If we're, not, if we're not in these rhythms of rest where we remind ourselves and one another that Jesus is Lord, if we're not in these rhythms of repentance where we remind ourselves and others that, that we sin and need the Lord's continual forgiveness, if we're not in these rhythms of quietness where we remind ourselves and others that not every voice in the cacophony that we're surrounded by is the Lord's, and if we're not in these rhythms of trust where we remind ourselves and others that God not only loves us, but has placed people around us to tangibly love us as well, Outside of those rhythms, all that remains for us is destruction, anxiety, worry, and ultimately, destruction. You're going to be overwhelmed by the rampant injustices in this world, by the seemingly never-ending cycles of exploitation and death. But in union with Christ, in union with the one who lived on our behalf and died on our behalf, the one who, though he prayed three times to see if that cup would be taken away from him, still went to the cross. The one who laid in the grave and yet still proclaimed his victory over the powers. The one who got up early one Sunday morning. The one who ascended and sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. The one who still lives and works among us in union with that one. This Jesus Christ. You can have peace. You can have joy. You can know that the victory has already been won. You can know that the powers have been embarrassed. You can know that the exploiter doesn't win. You can know that death doesn't win. You can know that you can live in solidarity with your neighbor, loving them tangibly, working alongside them and on their behalf. You can even agitate alongside them. And you don't need to be afraid of whatever Assyria happens to be knocking at your door, whatever fearful unknown you may think lurks around every corner. You don't need Egypt. We don't need Egypt. We don't need Rahab the do-nothing. What we need, who we need, is Jesus. Who we need is the one who has already done everything. Brothers and sisters, when we go forward this week, may this be a week of rest, of repentance, of quiet, and of trust. Let's pray.